Hello everybody and welcome into episode number 73 of the Bible 2021 podcast. We are reading Hebrews 9 today and our focus is on how the blood of Jesus cleanses people. Well, by my calculations, we are now one-fifth of the way through 2021 since 73 is exactly one-fifth of 365. 20% of the year done and gone. Thank you for spending part of it with us hearing God's Word. Welcome to new listeners in South Australia, parts unknown China, Odisha, India, Delhi, India, Manitoba, Canada, Tampa, Florida, Houston, Texas, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you for joining us. And listen, this is a great episode today. And it's not great because of my hosting or anything I've got to say. It's great because we're studying a great truth. And it's great because we have this incredible message at the end from Charles Spurgeon that you've got to hear. Please share the show with your friends and neighbors because it's so good and good news soaked. It will be good for them. Share it on social media. Tell people about it. What is the bloodiest chapter in the entire Bible? Well, if you answered Hebrews 9, then you are spot on. You win a prize. I don't mean bloody as violent, but bloody as in the chapter of the Bible where the word blood is used the most. Hebrews 9 is king in that department with 12 uses of the word blood. I can't find another chapter in the Bible with more than 10 mentions of the word with only one exception. Blood is obviously a big, big deal in both the Old and New Testaments, but why? Isn't blood kind of gross and cringeworthy? Doesn't the sight of blood and even the mention of blood make some people recoil? Why is the Bible fixated on blood? That's a great question that the Bible answers in a very clear way in the Old Testament in Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Skip to verse 14. Since the life of every creature is its blood, I've told the Israelites you are not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Well, if you guessed that Leviticus 17 has the second most mentions of blood in the Bible, you win again. 11 mentions there. Life is in the blood, says the word of God, and spilled blood makes atonement. It's the only thing that makes atonement. And you say, what is atonement? I hear you asking. Quite simply, atonement is a reparation. Think repairing for a sin or error. In other words, atonement makes something right in the eyes of the offended party. If you back up and run over somebody's $300 bike and break it beyond repair, and it's obviously your fault, You would atone for your mistake by paying $300. Now, that's pretty simple. How do you atone for sin, however? That's not as simple when you're dealing with a perfectly holy God. His ways of atonement, according to the Bible, his only way of atonement is lifeblood. Blood is the thing that atones or covers slash repairs sins. This brings us to our verse of the day, which is one of the pillars and foundations of theology Judaism, and Christianity. If you don't understand this verse and its implications, then Christianity will be quite a mystery to you. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It bears repeating, in God's economy, in God's ways, in God's eyes, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Why? 
because only blood can cover, atone, repair the damage done by sin. Now, you might think that this is a bit out there or extreme or strange, but it's likely you think that because you and I both undervalue, underestimate how damaging, wrong, and dangerous sin is. We're flawed, and therefore it's quite easy for us to overlook our flaws, though quite a bit more difficult to overlook the flaws of others, right? God, however, is utterly flawless in every way, and sin is an offense to his very nature. The only way to cleanse sin is by lifeblood. Sin is just that serious. Well, let's read our chapter, and then we're going to turn to some great words from Spurgeon. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will is valid only when people die since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen. Well, let's turn to Spurgeon to help us understand this chapter in a deeper way. Spurgeon says, Your real want is to know how you can be saved. If you are aware that your sin must be pardoned or punished, your question will be, how can it be pardoned? And then point blank in the very teeth of your inquiry, there stands out this fact. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Mark you, this is not merely a Jewish maxim. It is a worldwide and eternal truth. It pertains not to the Hebrews only, but to the Gentiles likewise. Never, in any time, in any place, in any person can there be remission apart from the shedding of blood. This great fact, I say, is stamped on nature. It is an essential law of God's moral government. It is one of the fundamental principles which can neither be shaken nor denied. Never can there be any exception to it. It stands the same in every place throughout all ages. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was so with the Jews. They had no remission without the shedding of blood. Some things under the Jewish law might be cleansed by water or fire, but in no case where absolute sin was concerned was there ever purification without blood. And note how decisive this is in its character. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. But sir, can't I get my sins forgiven by my repentance if I weep and plead and pray? Will not God forgive me for the sake of my tears? No remission, says the text, without shedding of blood. But sir, if I never sin again, and if I serve God more zealously than any other man, will he not forgive me for the sake of my obedience? No remission, says the text, without shedding of blood. But sir, may I not trust that God is merciful, and he will forgive me without the shedding of blood? No, says the text, without shedding of blood, there is no remission, none whatever. It cuts off every hope. Bring your hopes here, and if they are not based in blood and stamped with blood, they are as useless as castles in the air and dreams of the night. But as there is no remission without bloodshedding, it is implied that there is remission with it. Mark it well, this remission is a present fact. The blood having been already shed, the remission is already obtained. I might now conduct you to a garden to show you the grand proof of the remission. Aside from the haunts of this busy world, in this garden was a new sepulcher, a grave hewn out of a rock, where Joseph of Arimathea thought his own poor body should presently be laid. But there they laid Jesus instead after his crucifixion. He had stood in guarantee for his people, and the law had demanded his blood. Death had held him with a strong grasp, and that tomb was, as it were, the dungeon of his captivity, when, as the good shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep. Why then do I see in that garden an open grave? I will tell you, the debts are paid, the sins are canceled, the remission is obtained, Jesus is not in the grave anymore. How, think you? That great shepherd of the sheep has been brought again from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant, and in him also we have obtained redemption through his blood. Friends, that's the good news, and it's great news. Let's close with our verse for the month, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Good day to you, my friends, and Godspeed.